Yay. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. My name's Cord. I'm an alcoholic. I, I talk a little funny, but uh, you can probably understand me. I want to thank uh, you guys, the committee, and everybody who uh, invited me out. I think you've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing. And uh, congratulations on 65 years of, uh, of AA. It's my, kind of a mind-boggling number uh, to a, a young, youthful, fresh, crisp guy like myself that conceive of that that many years. But uh, it really reminds me of how uh, fortunate I am to be born in the time that I'm born when there's a solution uh, for what's wrong with me. And I, I hope I find it soon. <coughs> but it's nice to know what's out there. Um, I, uh, talked to, uh, Sully, and, and I was going to, uh, meet Sully at the airport when I got here, and she handed me over to Doug, and, uh, Doug was, was with his family, and, uh, then Jeff showed up in a unmarked white van, <laughs> brought it to a slow roll, and, uh, and I threw it in. It, it never fails. Uh, I'm from Boston, and, uh, no matter how far I go, I always get picked up by a Yankee fan. <laughs> Never fails. Uh, they did it to me in Colorado, Mickey. And uh, here, there's three in the state. The other two are in jail, and I get Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, we, we've had fun so far. It's just the beginning of the weekend, but it's already been a lot of fun. And uh I, I really do get uh, kind of overwhelmed when I when I think of uh, being here and, and speaking in front of people about sobriety. It just it doesn't seem right or normal, and I just kind of I don't know. I, I don't get it. <clears throat> so I uh, I do every time what my sponsor, my first sponsor, took me through the, the book and through the steps, told me I was uh, not sober that long. The first time I spoke somewhere, and I said, "Geez, I, I really don't know what I'm what I'm going to do. I'm kind of nervous." And he just said, "Well, if you just pray and tell the truth," and he left it at that. So that's what I do every time that I speak anywhere. Um, I just pray and then I, I shoot from the hip and tell the truth, and uh, hopefully don't offend uh, too many people. Uh, I just read a little snippet from my my big book. What's left of it here? It's a little. I read it a couple of times before, and it sort of fell apart on me. But uh, I just read from page 29. We hope that no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages and believe. We believe that it's only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they'll be persuaded to say, yes, I'm one of them, too. I must have this thing. So I, I, if I share anything that offends anybody, I should certainly try not to. Uh, but... Uh, I do have to just tell the truth and, and let it go from there. <clears throat> so, uh, I was, uh, born in, in 1966 to two parents that didn't drink and seven older brothers and sisters and, uh, that, that didn't have a problem with alcohol. And, uh, when they brought me home from the, uh, hospital on March 3rd, uh, that home became an alcoholic home because I was there. So I, I can't blame uh, my, my parents or uh, my situation. I had a nice home. Uh, I, I don't have any idea why I was the lucky one. But uh, I don't know how these poor people made it through life without alcohol. But uh, I, I definitely wasn't going to. So um, <clears throat> later, my mom died when I was about 10. Later, uh, 
my dad married another lady and, and alcohol was brought into the home, but it wasn't her fault either. I was basically uh, waiting for the magic of alcohol ever since I was born. I just didn't know what I was waiting for. And uh, when I was about 13, I was in a shed at the top of Pine Street where I grew up and I discovered alcohol. Uh, I uh, had never felt that good before that uh, time, and, and um, it was magic. I'll, I'll tell you, I, uh, we were in the shed. I was in about the 7th or 8th grade, I think the 8th grade, and uh, there were, you know, these cool chicks from my class that I had never spoken to before that night, and I have never spoken to since. <laughs> but I talked to them that night, I'll tell you that. And... Uh, when I when I got that alcohol into me, uh, I just felt different. You know, I just felt felt different. And uh, I knew from that night on what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to feel exactly like that. You know, I was there with my hero. He was two years older than me. He was bigger than me. And I drank more than him and got away with it. He threw up, got bagged by his parents, and a star was born. You know, I found something I could excel at, something I was good at. I didn't drink every day after that, and I didn't black out every time I drank. I didn't, you know, but what I did do is I wanted to drink. After that time, I knew what I wanted to do, and I drank every opportunity I got after that. Um, when I was a 16 or 17, I started drinking a lot more. You know, it was virtually every weekend in the summers, a lot of weekdays, whenever I could get away with it. Uh, when I hit about 20, I began to, uh, yeah, about 20 and a half. I had a brilliant idea. My friend and I, <clears throat> he was old enough to buy alcohol. He's a year and a half older than me. We discovered that uh, he was 21 and he was getting a divorce. And uh, we discovered <clears throat> that when we would buy a, a six-pack piece every day, it was sort of a waste of money. But if we combined and bought a case and split it, it could last two days, and we'd save a couple of bucks because I'm very good with numbers, and I knew this immediately. And what happened is these other dullards that we hung around with were skyping beers from us, so we were losing them. And I was like, "Well, we might as well be drinking the damn things. These guys are just going to drink them." And and that's when I graduated to being a 12 pack a day drinker, which was a big day for me. It was a big move, and um, you know, from there. Things just went on. When I hit college, I went away to drink. That's why I went to college. I had no illusions about an education. That was sort of a side product. <laughs> and I blasted through the, the outstanding institution of Westfield State College on the uh, John Belushi program from Animal House. <laughs> Five and a half years for that four-year degree flat. And, uh, and I somehow graduated in spite of myself. And I really reinvented myself when I when I was in college. And <clears throat> looking back, I'll never come up and and stand at a podium and tell you how much I hate alcohol or how awful al alcohol kept me alive for years. Alcohol without alcohol, I don't know what I would have done. I, I was uh, extremely uh, you know terrified of life. I didn't really know this at the time, but I just couldn't really function. And when I drank. I, I was at ease. I could talk to other people. I never would have had a girl. I'd be a virgin probably still today were it not for alcohol. You know? So I'm never going to complain about alcohol. And uh, what I now, 
It's not that funny, I mean. <laughs> and uh, so I'll never complain about alcohol because I'll tell you, it got me through a lot of tough times when I was 16, 17. I had a lot of times where I, I was really feeling down and, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was suicidal. And, uh, you know, later I was a very, very uh, just an unhappy guy and uh, alcohol got me through those times. Now, years later, I can understand that I was medicating alcoholism with alcohol. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, it it doesn't sound all that crazy at all, you know. So this is kind of what it feels like, felt like for me, to be alcoholic. I, I remember I was 16, and uh, I haven't told the story in a while. I don't know why, but uh, probably because it depresses the hell out of me. Maybe that's it. But I was 16. <clears throat> and I was about five feet two, ninety-seven pounds, and uh, I was a can- captain on my candlepin bowling team. I was an a- I was an athlete. I was an athlete, and uh, and my dad, who's about was born the same time as Caesar, comes down and keep. I was uh, like a you know a, another marriage kid so my dad's old my dad's like he's gonna be uh 82 next in like a week next friday and uh so my dad would come down and keep score for my team at the bowling alley when i was 16 which is cool up until you're about 12 or so <laughs> so dad would keep scoring on my team there was a girl from my homeroom my sophomore class named Lori. And uh, Lori didn't look 12. Lori was 16 going on 20. She was dating a guy 23 years old that owned his own company, had his name on the side of buildings. The kid drove a Toronado. I mean, he was a big deal. <laughs> he did. And, uh, and my dad, my dad says to some of the other guys in the league, uh, to some of the older guys, because older guys always want to be helpful to the younger guys, you know. My dad said, don't you think Court and Lori would make a, a cute couple? You know, good. You know, it would have been less painful if he had taken that scoring pencil and shoved it through my retina. <laughs> because everybody, God loved Dad, but everybody on the planet, including Court, knew that Court and Lori didn't make any kind of couple, you know. And uh, the guys had a lot of fun with that. They thought Lori would like to know about this idea, you know. It was brutal. Yeah, it was painful. Thank God I had already discovered alcohol by this point. So that's kind of looking back what alcoholism felt like to me. I was hoping to God you wouldn't find out that I was that guy that was never going to be the guy that got the Lori's of the world. You know, and that's what's important. You know, and, and I, I'm like, I don't even like Lori, you know. But it's important to have Lori because if Lori's next to me, you'll know I'm okay. You know? Years later, I, I used to say that all the time. I didn't even like Lori. And I'm like, well, why didn't I like Lori? You know? I didn't like her because it was too painful to like people like that. So uh, moving forward, that's kind of how I, I walked around and, and felt. When I uh, got into college, I sprouted up. I got to about five, eight and a half. I was a, I was a bruising buck 35. <laughs> Now, again, not that funny, CJ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I reinvented myself, you know, uh, be- because of my uh, adept skill at Quinsigamond Community College. Uh, I was uh, a year and a half older than everyone in my class because it took me 
five, you know, five semesters to get that two-year degree. Then I, well, let's take a semester off. And so I could buy alcohol when all these other kids uh, couldn't. So I became the keg guy. You know, so I'll buy the kegs and run the kegs. And I became a, a you know, a minor celebrity because I had the tap, you know. <laughs> and that's very important in college. So I, I sort of reinvented myself. And, and this is sort of how I navigated through life with my little alcoholic toolkit. Uh, you know, I, I never really knew who I was, and I didn't want you to know who I was because you'd know that I wasn't okay. And uh, I, I didn't really understand that. So for years, I medicated this stuff with alcohol. It worked. It got me out of myself. It, it uh, anesthetized the alcoholism. So uh, years go by, and I'm 30. <clears throat> I'm homicidal, and I'm suicidal. And uh, things aren't working. I'm pretty sharp. Alcohol has not worked for about seven years. But I'm going with it. Because it's all I got. You know, and, and I mean, today I can sit here and tell you, if I was not an alcoholic, if I did not drink myself into becoming an alcoholic, which is what happened for me, uh, I would be a moron. Because alcohol is the only thing that ever worked. Like if I, you know, I felt like I was born with a splinter in my brain, and the only time I didn't feel that was when I drank. You know, if something else took that feeling away, I'd be in a different fellowship, you know, uh, but it didn't. Alcohol worked. So it's a, a natural, a foregone conclusion that I was going to become an alcoholic. Uh, so I'm 30, things aren't working, I'm maybe getting relief one out of 20, but you know what, one out of 20 is better than none out of 20. And uh, when the only time I've ever felt okay in my life is when I was drinking, of course I'm, I'm going to go to that. I don't know any of these things. I'm, uh, you know, really feeling terrible. And, and uh, I have a thought that passes through my, my brain. Uh, my grandfather was 93 when he died in about 1992, right? And uh, it dawns on me that he, he got cancer in his leg and it spread through his body is, is how he died. That when I'm 92, they'll have a cure for cancer and I'm never going to die. <laughs> I'm going to live forever until I'm like 120, feeling exactly the way I felt at that moment. And that was the worst, darkest thought I could possibly have. It was awful. And uh, this is where my mind was when I would leave my apartment and walk down the street. I, I lived in Malden, which, for those of you not from Massachusetts, is just as depressing as the alcoholic uh, homicidal and suicidal tendencies. Mother's not a happy, you know, it's a tough, it's a rough town. So I'm walking down the, the street, you know, all three birds and Maud, Malden are chirping. And uh, I got a spring in my step, you know, because today's the day that when I get to the orange line, I'm going to have the Dutch courage that it takes to step in front of the train instead of on it. And I would have that kind of brief fleeting joy Every time I walked down that street, convincing myself today was the day that I was going to be able to do it. Inevitably, I'd get to the platform and I'd think of my friends. You know, I have a lot of friends that I've had my entire life. Guys from high school, mostly guys from college. A lot of guys I drank with, you know. Like, my best friend's not a drunk, you know. Uh, he drank just like me in college. I never understood how this guy could not be an alcoholic. And I could. And I figured he was just a better guy than me. He grew up. Or he's boring or whatever. I, just, I never got it. So I had a lot of people like that. And when I get to that platform, I think of those people. And I feel guilty. And I think of my dad. 
And I'd think of my family and my sisters and brothers, and I'd be like, oh, man. And I couldn't step in front of the train, and I'd be all kinds of depressed all over again. So I realized I was not going to be able to flick my own switch. I wasn't going to be able to do it. And that was incredibly depressing. And I thought of how long my grandfather lived, and I'm like, oh, man, this is just going to go on and on. And I felt like in, in the book it says, you know, he felt as though, the, you know, the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. That's how I kind of felt. I was like, oh, this is not good. And uh, I got down at the end of my bed in Malden, and I said a prayer to God I didn't really believe in. And, uh, there's probably something out there, but I, I really don't know. And the last prayer that I had said that was really a legitimate, heartfelt prayer was, God, don't let my mother die. Don't let my mother die. My mom died when she was 50. I was 10. And this woman never did anything to anybody. She was a saint. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't swear. She was a, a brilliant woman and just, uh, you know, involved in charities. And I'm thinking, wow, if God won't answer my prayer and say, this woman, yeah, maybe he's, he's evil or he just doesn't care or there is no God. None of the answers were good. And I just didn't get it. So I never said another prayer for 20 years except the 911 variety, you know, getting pulled over by the cops, waiting for a pregnancy test, you know. Really needing the pats to cover on a Monday night. Stuff like that, you know. And I got down and I said this prayer. And it was sort of a half-assed third-step prayer. I was like, God, you know, if I don't really believe in you. If there's anything out there, just please help me. It probably took me 20 minutes to say that. But I was just going, nothing made sense to me. And I was like, you know what, I'm out. I'm out. If, if you're out there, just please show me the way. You know, kind of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, if you're there, just show me the way. And really, that's where my path began to where I am today. That that's Even though I continued to drink after that, I had no clue, that's really, for me, where my recovery began. I did something different the next day. And, and by the way, I got up from that prayer. I can't say I felt good, but I felt less bad. I felt less bad than I had in years. I felt a little glimmer of hope, and a weight was off my back. I mean, I still had like a thousand pounds on it, but there was like a hundred off, and it was. I felt something. So the next day, I did something different that I hadn't done before. I uh, I went down to a mental health clinic, and I told them I was suicidal. I kept the homicidal part to myself <laughs> because I thought they might throw the block me up, throw the key away. So I kept that to myself. I told them this, and the lady said to me, oh, you poor dear. And she was this beautiful blonde woman, and I felt better. You know, I was like, this isn't bad. I'm like, I know it's pity, but hey, you know. Um, so she, uh, she said, well, you know, well, we can give you something for, for that. Now, I've always altered my uh, emotions by outer, outside substances, alcohol various drugs. I'm not a, I, I never became a drug addict because they didn't work for me as well as alcohol. Not because I'm smart or better, you know. They just didn't work. I go with what works. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to alter myself with outside stuff. And uh, for some reason, the words came out, no, I don't think so, for me. Now, I don't know, you know, I. this is only my experience. I have no idea who needs to do what and what helps who. But for me, just a little voice said, no, you're done medicating for, for now. And I, and I said, no. And um, the lady set me up with this counselor, and I did something different. 
Now, I began to take positive, constructive action to try to change my life. And uh, I went down and I told this lady the truth about everything except how much I drank because I wanted to focus on the real problem. <laughs> and I thought she'd just tell me, kid, you know, your, your problems, you drink too much, get out of here. And the only time I didn't feel like killing myself or my boss, mostly, uh, most, most of the time that was what was, you know, pervaded my head, uh, was when I was in that room on a Wednesday afternoon. And I didn't want to, I was terrified of losing this. So I just didn't want to focus on the alcohol. Eventually, this woman was so smart. And she was just an intern. She was so smart that she led me to my own decision that alcohol was probably a problem for me. And uh, a short while later, I wound up in AA, which is where things really took off for me. So I, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I put down alcohol, and I joined the ranks of untreated alcoholics. So I went from being an active drunk that was, you know, you know, going for oblivion, blotting out my consciousness of the intolerable situation with alcohol to a guy that was blotting out the intolerable situation with resentment, you know, hate, fear, uh, you know, other things, you know, whatever, gir girls, this, this kind of stuff, uh, degenerate gambling, whatever it was. And uh, I got to tell you, alcohol works better than those things. So when I put down alcohol, I in many ways became more ill than when I was drinking. My head was worse. My head was spinning more and more. And I'm like, wow, I'm not drinking. And now I want to like kill nine people and then myself. <laughs> I couldn't piece it together. And what I had done was I had just stopped treating my alcoholism. Alcohol wasn't really working, but it was better than nothing. So I had stopped that. And I began to go to AA, and uh, I, I had a, a system that I was using. And uh, when someone in a meeting would mention God or the steps, I would wait two speakers and leave. This was my plan of attack, and, and it was—it was not really that effective, <laughs> to be truthful. But I was going with it. And then I noticed that most of the guys that kind of made sense, they'd, they'd be, I went to this meeting in Malden, and uh, most of the guys, there were maybe 60 or 70 guys, about six really made a lot of sense, and you'd be, uh, you'd be in your chair praying. It was a Monday-Thursday meeting, and I only went Monday because I went somewhere else on Thursday. And I'd be praying, I'd be like, oh, I hope Jack didn't speak last Thursday because I, I know if he did, he won't say anything today. But I hope Kenny, oh, please let Kenny say something. And I would hope that these guys with a clue would say something, and it would just make me feel so much better because they were talking about solutions and getting better and this stuff, and, and they were telling the truth. This one guy who was an older guy, he talked about all the fear he had and stuff, and I'm, I'd be like, wow, this guy's really telling the truth, and, and it just blew me away. And it wasn't until later that I realized that these guys were well. That's why I was attracted to them, you know, and that they had these particular guys had built a relationship with their higher power that had begun to heal them of the alcoholism. I, ha I didn't grasp that at the time. Over time, I, I slowly wore down a little bit. And I ran into a guy at a meeting. <clears throat> and I heard him share, and I said, geez, I really need uh, need some help. This, this friend of mine's wife, who I became very good friends with, took me to this meeting. She was about eight months pregnant. And... Uh, she took me to this meeting, took me to this meeting, and she goes, you got to ask that guy for his number. So I said, okay. 
And uh, I went up and I asked him for his number. And he started taking me to some different meetings. He's like, keep going where you're going, but we're going to go here and kind of look at this and, and see what these guys are doing. And, and he took me to meetings where these people were really focused on the program of action. From there, I found a sponsor. And, and this guy tricked me, by the way. I said, uh, you know, he said, what are you willing to do to stay sober? At that point, it wasn't that much because I wasn't really happy. I said, I don't know. I'll do a little. I mean, what do you want? You know, what do I, what do I got to do? You know, I didn't know I was supposed to say, oh, anything. I'll do anything, you know, because I didn't, I wouldn't do anything, you know. So um, he said, well, you know, there's work you have to do if you want to get better. And I'm like, okay, I'll do work as long as it doesn't involve the steps of God. So I didn't tell him that. But I said, okay, work, fine. And, of course, it turned out to be the steps, the little minx. But, uh, <laughs> so he took me to a meeting where I met my, my sponsor that would, that would take me through. Now, up until that point, at the meetings that I go to, or, or in the meetings we have for the most part in Massachusetts, they read what a lot of folks refer to as the ninth-step promises at virtually every meeting in the beginning. Not all of them, but pretty much 90, 90 to 95% of the meetings start this way. So I'd be sitting out there, and I'd, I'd be watching guys that knew every word of, this, of these promises. And then I'd see that guy get up and get a 30-day chip or a 24-hour chip. And I'm like, wow, it just didn't make any sense to me. I just assumed everybody was sober. I didn't, you know, I, or not. So I didn't get it. I'm like... And I'm like, what? how do you get the promises? That's what I'm interested in. Because I don't want to feel like blowing my brains out for the rest of my life, you know? How do you get there? Is it 10,000 meetings? Is it, five, is it five years? Is it, what is it, make coffee, pick up a chair, and drive some jerk to a detox? What is it? <laughs> Give me the recipe. Give me the combination. And, you know, and I just didn't get it. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I wish they read this. I wish they read page 52, because that's where I was at the time. You know, in that unmanageable, miserable existence that described basically uh, one of the two alternatives for a, for a guy like me. We talk about the two. One alternative is to blot out the consciousness of how much everything sucks, basically. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they say, basically. Um and the other is to accept spiritual help. Well, before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know that I had a spiritual problem, and I didn't know that I had that alternative. So I really had one alternative, blot out. That, that's all I had. And uh, that, that's basically where I, where I was at. Uh, what I didn't understand was that uh, that page 52 existence was a result of just me running my life on self-will with an alcoholic mind. And uh, that wasn't going to change without alcohol. What I needed was a solution for the way I lived and a new set of principles, a new toolkit. And uh, I, I didn't really understand that. Uh, you know, years later, I can look back and say, oh, okay, well, that, that makes sense, you know. And, and um, you know, geez, Silk, I like to call him Silky. But uh, Dr. Silkworth talked about, I got that from Bill W. Bill W. called him Silky. I didn't make that up. So, <clears throat> Silky. So Silky talks about, in, in Doctor's opinion, I love this guy because he doesn't know anything. He doesn't pretend to know anything. He has no answers. He'll just tell you what he's seen. You know, he's just telling. That's why I'm better off just telling you what I've done and what I what's happened to me, rather than get coming up with theories and you know. And here's my opinion about that. Who cares what my opinion is? So 
Silkworth says, yeah, these allergic types, alcoholics, you know, and he reads a, you know, a bunch of stuff. Then he fires up a semicolon for no apparent reason. For no good reason whatsoever. Fires up a semicolon. Now, I got a C in English, so I know what a semicolon means. Okay? Means, end of that thought. And, oh, by the way, here's another completely different thought. So it says, these allergic types, once they've lost this capacity to control the drink and blah, blah, blah. And he throws us he's like, oh, yeah, and also, their problems pile up and become astonishingly difficult to solve. I'm like, that's me. And then you read the next paragraph, and it says, frothy, emotional, nothing. He doesn't tell you anything. He doesn't tell you why they pile up, how they pile up, how to stop piling them up. He has no clue. He's just saying, yeah, I've seen 50,000 of you goons. This is what happens. I think it's hurtful, to be honest with you. But he's telling us what he's seen. This is what I've witnessed. This is what I've witnessed. God love him. He helped helped us more than any other doctor I think that's ever existed. And by his own admission, in his own words, I've never helped one like you. (laughs) Never helped one of us. You know, he he was never able to to cure Bill or anybody like Bill, a real chronic alcoholic like myself. But he gave us information that we needed. So um, I wanted to know why my problems piled. You know, I, I just didn't get it. Uh, you know, years later, I was listening to a fifth step, and, uh, and I wrote one of these War and Peace Leo Tolstoy fourth steps, cause I had to be sicker than everybody else, and I had, you know, I had two resentments against a kid, and I had to make it nine. You know, I had the character assassinate him. And what I did was really write way more than I needed to, and created a smoke screen, so that I couldn't see the things that really hurt, you know. Uh, and I'm not saying that don't be thorough, but, I, you know, we, in my neck of the woods, we have a tendency to either uh, avoid the steps like smallpox or, uh, you know, write for 11 years. And it's like, hey, there's a guy dying in the street. Hey, I got to write, you know. <clears throat> so I didn't need to, to go to the, the length of uh, that, that I did. But, you know, it worked for me. So, hey, what the heck? It, it was my experience. But it did affect how I sponsor other people. So I... I uh, I was listening to a fifth step, and I and I saw this kid uh, as a little boy, little four-year-old kid, and how his thinking was shaped at that point, where he got the tools that he got to navigate through life, you know, and what those tools were going to get him. And I saw that this kid never had a chance. It was never going to be different for this kid, you know. Not a lucky break in in '83. Not a you know nothing that that uh, happened. And God kind of got a message through to me. He said, geez, Court, do you think that could be true for you? Because you know? I'm always going to cut you slack, but I'm the worst uh, possible prosecutor on my own case. You know, And uh, it came to me that, geez, yeah, maybe that's true for me. You know, It wasn't ever going to be different for this kid. With the tools he had and the brain he had and the allergy to alcohol and drugs he had, it just wasn't going to be different. And uh, that sort of enabled me to take some of the blame off and just accept, yeah, this is the way I am. My brain works in a wacky way. These are the tools I use to get through life, and this is the result. And, and the result of that was in that fourth step. You know, I, I occasionally hear stuff like, I found out who I was in my fourth step. And I'm like, good God, I hope not. You know, I hope not. I found out who I never was in that fourth step. The guy that was revealed in that fourth step was a fish out of water. You know, it was an alcoholic 
without God. And that's a hideous combination. You know, it's a rough, rough combination. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't going to be any different for me. Uh, and I was able to see that, uh, really only through helping, helping this other guy. And, uh, through hearing a couple of fist steps, things became a lot more clear to me than, uh, when I just wrote, I just couldn't get some things even when I wrote them myself or, or through making amends. I needed to get them, uh, by way of another guy from, you know, my higher power. And that's just been the way it's worked for me. So, um, I came to discover that, uh, that page 52 existence for me was never going to change unless my mind changed. I needed a drastic uh, overhaul in the way I thought, acted and reacted to life. Because I created most of my own difficulties, probably pretty much all of them. And I didn't understand that. And this is, this is the mind that I used. <clears throat> and it's just, you know, I'm sharp. Like, uh, most of us are pretty sharp people. It's not stupidity. I just look through a tinted lens and I see things a little differently. I'll be walking down the street, you know, good-looking guy and a good-looking gal coming the other way. I immediately dislike this son of a gun, you know. I don't like the guy. Why? You know, what? why is that? I'm like, look at this jerk, you know. Look, at he's got a better-looking girl than I do, you know. Or I, I don't have any girl. He thinks I'm gay, blah, blah, you know. This is This is somehow important, you know. You know, and he's bigger than me. He probably thinks he can he can take me. You know, like I'm 30, and I'm thinking like I'm in junior high. I could take this, you know. And uh, I'm walking around, and what I don't understand is that's alcoholism. You know, that's the alcoholism. That's a, in in my uh, work. That kind of really didn't come out so much. I didn't get real a lot of depth in my fourth step later from listening to other people and having people kind of tweak things and show me a different angle. I, I saw how. Most of the delusion for me is in the third column. Like, this world, I think, affects me in all these different ways. But really, I'm walking around with alcoholism in my gut. And my brain works like a corrupt prosecutor that really believes you're guilty and has no proof whatsoever. It's like, this guy did it. He was in Peru. He said, no, no, he did it. But that guy confessed and his finger, no, no, it's this guy. You know, that's how my brain works. That's how my mind works. And it, it'll find proof, really, that I suck, that I'm not good enough everywhere, even when things do not pertain to me at all. This guy and this girl have nothing to do with me. But I see this situation, and my alcoholic mind tells me I'm a loser somehow, and here's proof. And it finds proof everywhere. Now, it doesn't feel good to feel crappy. So my alcoholic mind leaps to my defense and comes up with a case also based in nonsense, you know? You know, look at the size of this goon, probably on steroids. You know? Can't get it up because of the steroids. Yeah. Probably slaps her around. Now, who wants to go out with a dopey girl that like this, that goes around with this guy that's beating her, you know? I don't even know these people. You know? They could be cousins. They, you know, I don't know anything. You know? And then conversely, you know, I was the guy walking down the street with a good-looking girl. And I'd see a guy by himself, and I'd think, the lucky bastard. <laughs> if only I could unload this one, I'd be so happy. You know? And I wouldn't piece it together. I want one year, and this wasn't junior high. I was like 27, right? One year, I went out with the same girl nine times. 
you know. Go out, I'm miserable with her, miserable without her. Miserable with her, miserable. I never connected that I was the constant in all of those equations. <laughs> Didn't dawn on me. That was my one crack at, at being an untreated Al-Anon, and it was awful. <laughs> I, I don't envy those poor people, I'll tell you. It was miserable. Oh, what a nightmare. And I never pieced together that I was the constant in, in both of those equations. I just didn't get it. If only she would do this or, or appreciate or blah, blah, blah. I just, I had no clue. And, uh, you know, and I, I would use people to medicate those feelings. Like I didn't like, you know, it's not fun to walk around feeling like a loser. So I'd see this guy and this girl and I'd feel crappy and I'd break out my alcoholic toolkit. What can I do to feel better? Well, one thing. You know, cook up some delusion. You know, the book says we get a hundred forms of self-seeking, hundred forms of fear. Hundred, I think they lowballed it with me there. Hundred forms of, you know, hundred forms of self-delusion, etc. And um, you know, I cook up a little self-delusion. Tell the steroid, tell yourself the steroid story. Now, I didn't know I was telling myself a story, but that's what I'm doing. You know, then when I, geez, I feel good for nine seconds, and then what? Well, I don't feel it. So what do I do? Well, get home. Call some girl you don't care about, vampire a little self-esteem out of her. You know, feel good for another 12 seconds. You know, anyway, call somebody up you don't really care about, have sex with them. Feel good for another, you know, six minutes. Three minutes, I got to keep it honest. If my sponsor didn't tell me to get in the CD from this, I would have not have corrected that. You know, and then what happens? I don't feel good. I don't feel good a short while later. And I have no clue why. I have no clue why. Now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty sometimes. I don't know. But hindsight is more effective than, than being in the moment for me back then. I, geez, I, I just couldn't get it. Now I can see that I created my world with the principles that I practiced. I didn't understand this. I had no no idea. So I'm like, well, what principles was I practicing, you know? Principles of selfishness, principles of, of uh, dishonesty, and you know, like, well, geez, well, how does that work out? How, you know, well, example, like, I was a selfish boyfriend, so I practiced the principles of a selfish boyfriend, and what do I get? I walk around feeling like a selfish boyfriend, which is not good. You know, I was a disrespectful son, so I walk around feeling like a disrespectful son, and I, geez, I just think I feel bad because my dad's a kook. But it's not really that he's a kook, it's that I'm a dirtbag, and it doesn't feel good to be a dirtbag. You know, my dad would cut his arm off for me. And he is old, and he was born in 1923, so he's weird. You know, we'd, <clears throat> we'd be in a, in a restaurant, you know, and he's sweetie, and honey, and cookie, and you know, and I'm like, oh my, shoot me, you know. And I'm, I want to crawl under the table, and instead of just letting this guy be who he, who he is, you know, he always let me be me, and, he, and I'm like none of my brothers and sisters. I'm a whack job, you know. And uh, my dad and I have the best relationship that he has with any of his kids. We're, we're very close friends. And this guy always let me be who I was. You know, he fought me for a while, and then he threw in the towel, you know. But he's, he's really always supported me and loved me, and he's always been a kind and loving father, you know. And I would walk around. And when he'd embarrass me, I'd, w- I'd want to throw him under a bus, you know. I'd be like, oh, man. And, you know, I would think of instances like this where we were in the grocery store. Okay, now this is why I was like five years sober or something. I had already made amends to my dad. We're in a grocery store in the boonies in the middle of Maine. And uh, 
Dad loves this store. It's his favorite store. He loves it. And he's in there all the time, but he's an old nut. So he's putting his stuff up on the conveyor belt. He's like, God damn, this place. I spent a fortune in here. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to crawl under the, I want to throw him under the bus, you know? So I'm like, the cashier's about 18 years old. She's looking at me. This cashier's looking at me. The bag boy's looking. And I, I have this incredible desire to sell the old man out. You know? Sell him out. Roll my eyes at the cashier. Yeah, he's a kook. What can I do? Shrug at the bag boy. Oh, yeah, it's not me. I'm not, you know, divorce myself from this man who would do anything for me. Who would do anything for me. And that's what I would normally do. Sell him out. And then I would leave and not feel good and start a fight with him on the ride home. Geez, Dad, why are you going to be a kook? Why are you going to call, you know, girl sweetie? Why do you got to, why do you have to be this way? And I would always feel lousy and I would never know why. I would think it was because my dad was a nut. But what it was is because I was a coward. I was a disrespectful little punk who didn't appreciate all this man had done for me and how much he loved me more than I appreciated the admiration of a 16-year-old bag boy I was never going to see again. And when you do things like that, you don't feel good. That's how I lived my entire life. You know, slaved other people's opinions. And I wouldn't, I didn't think that. I don't care what people think because I acted like an ass much of the time because I wanted to control people's opinions. If I didn't like you, I'd deliberately act like a goon. If you were kind of nerdy, I'd be like, uh, you know, I don't want this guy to like me because, you know, I, I want to seem cool or what. You know, I was, I was a complete slave to trying to manipulate and control people's opinions. And uh, I'm sitting, I'm standing in this line and I, I realize, you know, that 10-step bell goes off. You know what I mean? Like, ooh, wait a minute, something's not right here. You know, I feel feel it in my gut, and I could do one of two things, you know. Just like I was mentioning a little while ago, I think it's on page 25, there's the two alternatives. And they mentioned a few different ways in the book, but it's the same two alternatives. I can blot out the discomfort, the, the consciousness that, this isn't good. I can blot it out, what, by selling the old man out, you know, shrug and feel good for three seconds. Or I can take the spiritual path, which doesn't always give you immediate satisfaction and, and gratification. But I, I felt that in my gut. I'm like, ah, you know. And it dawned on me that I was going to sell this guy out for for these kids I wasn't going to see. And I paused and I, I said, God, direct my thinking. You know, remove the selfishness, you know, and the fear. And direct me to what you would have me be. Now, what would you have me be? A respectful son. And a real darkness came over me. And I was very sad because I realized that, you know, I was five or six years sober. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my dad, and I didn't know how to be a respectful son. It made me very sad. And uh, I just had to pray, and I said, Oh, God, I don't, if you want me to be a respectful son, you've got to show me what to do. I don't know what to do. Now, when I normally get in a situation like that, I call somebody with experience. I'll call my sponsor. You're a good husband. What would you do? You know, for, you know, what, you're a, this, blah, blah, blah. I didn't have anybody. I was in the grocery store. So I said, God, guide my actions. What would a respectful son do? And it was very clear. Just shut up. Just don't say a thing. Keep your mouth shut. Don't shrug at the cashier. Don't roll your eyes at the bag boy. Just be a respectful son and mind your own business. This has nothing to do with you. And by the way, the guy's about a thousand years old. Help with the groceries. Put a few of them up there. A good son would grab the canned goods. You know? And that's what I did. 
and that was different. You know, that that was a different reaction for me. And when I walked through, and I wish this happened every time I did the right thing. It doesn't. But when I walked through that line and began to walk out the door, I was overcome with just a wave of warmth and feelings of the presence of, of my creator. And I could feel how much I loved this guy. And I could feel how much my dad loved me. And, uh, you know, I walked out of there. Instead of what I had done a thousand times before, holding him responsible for my alcoholism and how I feel, you know, I walked out of there a respectful son, a guy with dignity and a guy that, that wasn't a coward. And that's how I felt. And I began to really see that the, the way that I feel is directly related to the principles that I practice and the man that I become. You know, when I was dating girls in, in my prior life, you know, I think I cheated on almost every girl and tried on the one that I didn't uh, cheat on. And I didn't feel good. And I never connected it. I just thought, well, geez, maybe it's not the right girl. Like, women to me were like life-size Tylenol. You know, I would feel better if I had a new girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And I, I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it. And, you know, after the after coming through the process of recovery, you know, I need to learn how to be a loving, loyal, respectful partner. I don't have experience with that. So I need to be shown how to do that. Show me step by step. And I need to be around people that practice this stuff in their lives and can show me. Uh, you know, my sponsor never, I don't think, told me how to sponsor anybody or what I should do. He showed me. He just practiced this stuff in his life I, I, like it was, you know, like he was rolling out of bed and this was just natural, you know. When he'd go away, he even if I hadn't called him for three weeks, he'd call me, tell me the day he was going to be gone, give me the number where he'd be that day or the number of his sponsor. And he did this regardless of what I was doing. He did the right thing. You know, he showed up on time. He was always prepared. If he said he was going to be home when I was going to call him, he was home. You know, he also respected his time. You know, when I called him 45 minutes late, he would, you know, he would speak, but he would have another sponsee calling. He was like, you know, I can only give you about 10 minutes because, you know, Joe, Joe is calling. And I'd be like, you know, okay. And I began to see how this guy uh, respected himself. But yet he was willing to give so much of his time to me. And it made me think, wow, geez, maybe maybe I am worth something. This, this guy's willing to give his time to me, and yet I know it's valuable to him. So he really taught me um, by uh, by doing and by practicing this stuff in his life. When I came into AA, as I mentioned, I wanted to be that guy on page 84 in those promises. And I just didn't have the recipe. I didn't get it. I didn't know how to do it. And what my sponsor gave me was the greatest gift I've been given. Uh, was he gave me a blueprint on how to become that guy. You know, when I came to AA, I was the guy on page 52. I didn't grasp that the guy on page 84 is the same doofus from page 52. They're the same goon. But he had become that guy because he had followed the directions in between those pages. The book's great about telling us that, hey, there's, there's a lot of ways to get to the top of the mountain. Here's one. And, and that's a way that worked for me. And it's really the only, the only thing I have, uh, to, to offer. But it is nice to have something to offer to a guy that's dying. And to see that guy come back is about the greatest gift that, that, uh, that I've been given. And, um, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to do that, uh, for somebody. I wish I could say I do it with a skip of my stuff all the time. That's, that's not true. But it really has been a tremendous gift. 
Well, I know there's a couple of, of real important things I'm probably skipping here. Let's just, uh, probably a couple of hundred important things. Let's just say a quick prayer and see if anything else comes to mind. As I, I promised my friend I'd try to fill the 75 minute tape. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I guess uh, I, one thing I want to add is, is that um, <clears throat> for me, the, the promises have begun to come true. Uh, when I when I met my sponsor, it was very much like they say uh, in the beginning of the book, believe it's the agnostics, it was like, boy, I wish I had what this guy had, and uh, I wish I could believe what he believed. And that actually used to irritate me. When people would say, oh, if you want what we have, I'd be like, who the hell, who are you that I want what you have, you know? But what they had was a way out. You know, what they had was that blueprint. And what I didn't understand is the reason my, my sponsor had this faith was because he'd experienced it. He, he lived it. He'd gone from being that dude on page 52 to page 84. He'd become that, that, uh, guy. And, uh, that's why he believed it. It wasn't that he was better than me or, you know, I just didn't understand that faith was acquired. You know, and that's what's happened to me. I didn't have a ton of faith. Uh, when I came into AA, and the only reason, I'm not stupid, you know, the only reason I have faith is because I've seen the stuff work, you know, and I've seen it work in my own life, but really in the lives of others as well, and uh, it's a lot like um, I needed a mechanic, and a buddy of mine recommended this guy over in uh, the other side of Somerville, I was a little skeptical, but this guy was a good friend, so I took my car there, and um he did a good job, and he gave me a fair price, and he was a nice guy. And I took it back, and I took it back, and I kept taking my car to this guy. Bellsway Auto, if you're ever in Somerville and you need a mechanic. <laughs> Jimmy. And I kept taking my car to this guy. And one time, someone else told me, I think you're going to need this, and it's about four or 500 bucks. You know, I took it to Jimmy, and it was 12 bucks. It was a screw missing on something. He put the screw in. He charged me 12 bucks. And I had told him, hey, I think it's this big thing. And I had a lot of faith in this guy from that point on. I knew he was going to do a good job. He was going to charge me fair. And I could trust him not only with my car, but I send everybody I know there now. But I acquired that faith by trusting and relying on this guy to do his job. Well, that's how I've acquired faith in my higher power, by trusting and relying on God over a period of time and practicing those principles and watching things unfold in my life. Um, for me... Um, you know, that, that fourth and fifth stuff was important. It's all important. Making the amends was important. But most of my life change has come after, you know, of practicing this stuff on a daily basis, uh, in my life. And I, I'm, I have to keep it wicked simple because I, I have a complicated mind. And I just have to bring the vision of God's will into every activity I do. I pause and I have to say, God, what direction would you like me to go in? Who would you have me be here? I already have nine bad ideas. When I'm jammed up, I never say, what should I do? Because I'll wind up like Jim the car salesman with whiskey in my milk. You know? Because Jim kept thinking, what should I do? What should I do? And he, you know? So I, God, what should I be? What would you have me be here? You know? A sober alcoholic. Okay, what would that guy do? What would you have me be here? Conscientious worker. Oh, that's a tough one. What would I do? You know? And as I've done that, you know, my life has been recreated uh, around me. And uh, really, each day is as good as the principles that I've practiced that day. And um, I, I really think that that's about all that I have to share with you guys. But uh, I really appreciate your your attention and your, and your uh, 
everything. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'll see you this weekend.